we've got murder mysteries, aliens, and more. Today I'm picking my 10 favorite movies from 2020. This is Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie Podcast. Hello, movie friends. Welcome to Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie Podcast. I am Scott, and today I am picking my 10 favorite movies of 2022. And as always, these are always just kind of the ones that stuck with me the most or the ones that just kind of stuck in my brain. And there's a lot of honorable mentions that uh, I may devote some other time to, including things like... uh, uh, Top Gun Maverick or Thor got, uh, Love and Thunder, which I really enjoyed. And also, I'm trying to think what else was it? Oh, uh, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, uh, one of my favorite movies of the year. But uh, these are the ones that I think are probably the most distinctive and probably the best chance of lasting or just the ones I enjoyed the most. So without further ado, let's get started. So 2022 was a surprisingly strong year for movies, thanks to, thanks to some excellent blockbuster fare, as well as some indies, horror, and genre fare to spice things up. With that in mind, here are 10 of my favorite movies from 2022. First up, we have The North Man. Robert Eggers' latest movie, a brutal reimagining of the same myth and story that inspired Hamlet, sounds like a diversion from Eggers' past films, at least on paper. But Eggers' fascinations and straightforward sensibilities are exactly what makes this movie look and feel more fantastic and grounded than the majority of recent period dramas. The push and pull between reality and fantasy, period-appropriate language, and stunning nighttime cinematography, blended with perhaps the most honest portrayal of slavery and warfare from this era ever put to screen, are all here. All of which is grounded by Alexander Skarsgård's imposing and intense brooding performance as the vengeful Amleth. It's a movie that makes one man's quest for revenge look and feel as epic as he imagines it, even if it cuts its own genre down to size. Next up is Prey. Making another Predator movie after multiple misfires, tepid crossovers with the Alien franchise, and more lore than any sci-fi horror franchise could possibly want sounds like a fool's errand. A quick cash-in on a familiar property, including a a being that's fought Batman. Thankfully, Dan Trachtenberg and company decided to put a more thoughtful, more thought and effort into this bad idea than anybody could have expected, and in the process gave a star-making performance for Ever Midthunder as Nehru, and a blueprint for more Predator movies moving forward. Our story follows a young Comanche woman who is eager to prove herself as a hunter and warrior to her tribe and family who just so happens to run into a predator that's working its way up the local food chain. The simple combination of plot and character growth would put this miles above past Predator movies before looking at all of the awesome details. For instance, how many languages are spoken in this movie, bloody action that franchise fans have come to expect, our resourceful indigenous hero, and even a very good boy, Adago, who was rescued and trained specifically for this movie, make watching and learning more about Prey endlessly enjoyable. Next up, we have Nope. Jordan Peele went big this year with a full sci-fi horror show about a brother and sister facing off against an alien menace. Almost all of the aspects that make Peele's work stand out are here, including a knack for creepy setups, for instance, how the UFO moves between cloud cover, well-time injections of absurdity and humor, and commanding performances from Daniel Kailua and Kiki Palmer. 
Add in smarmy turns from Steven Yoon and some clever filmmaking tricks and creature design, and you've got something truly engaging. But what makes this movie feel like something bigger than a darker take on Close Encounters are Peel's fil filmmaking chops and a bucket load of memorable imagery. Whether it's the reveal of what the ship is and how it operates, the aftermath of an animal attack during a sitcom, or even the tense final showdown, few films have stuck in my head as well as this one. Next up, we have Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. It was a good year for murder mysteries in rich people's houses, wasn't it? The premise of Bodies, Bodies, Bodies sounds like a teen movie on steroids, as a group of well-to-do friends meet up for a hurricane party and then self-destruct after one of them ends up dead. Using the hurricane setting to create tension via limited lighting for its set pieces, Helena Rijin th then lets the characters slam awkwardly into each other as years of unspoken tension rises to the surface, thanks to incredible circumstances and illicit substances running through everyone's systems, and that's before people start getting bludgeoned to death and bleeding out. And that's before we get to our human anchor, played by Maria Bakalova, and a scene-stealing comedic performance from Rachel Sennett. It's one of the best good-bad times of the year. Next up, we have All Quiet on the Western Front. Attempting to reimagine or capture the classic World War I novel or best the 1930 film seems like a fool's errand. In fact, it was one that was already attempted with mixed results in the 70s. So how do you update the novel's anti-war message for a modern audience? The 2020 remake's approach changed the style. Unlike previous versions that attempted to capture every aspect of combat and its impact on citizens, the 2020 edition opts for an amplified portrayal of war's brutality and cuts out almost everything else and lets the sol soldiers' youth, desperation, and pointless nature of the fighting speak for itself. Put another way, instead of being told how traumatizing it is for Paul to kill a French sol soldier very personally in no man's land, we just see it. While many modern war movies emphasize the necessity to fight in the face of terrible carnage, All Quiet argues that war should be avoided at all costs, because there's no glory to be found for the common people who do the fighting. Next up, we have RRR. Tollywood's smash hit is a three-hour epic melodrama, blending action, musicals, and the most sincere movie friendship in ages, and may seem par for the course for anyone familiar with Indian cinema. But almost no movie has gotten every element of that formula right like RRR has. Natu Natu is the obligatory dance number that is also the best looking, performed, and choreographed musical sequence in years. Each character's introduction is a superheroic action scene that would be the climax of a thousand other movies. And even the misunderstanding fight features men being torn apart by tigers in the background as our heroes throw statues and water fountains at, as one, at one another. As I said in my Lessons from 2020 piece, audiences loved sincerity this year, but it requires a ton of skill to shoot, edit, and perform a film that's this silly and this well-crafted. Next up, we have Glass Onion. Rianne Johnson's Benoit Blanc follow-up to Knives Out has all of the same elements that made the original so much fun. A collection of hateable characters played by an all-star cast, Daniel Craig seemingly having the time of his life portraying Benoit Blanc, and a number of fun twists on the whodunit genre, which is what I and many audiences expected. What I didn't expect was that Glass Onion would sharpen the original film's social commentary into a darkly funner, funny razor's edge, and turn this twisty thrill ride full of funny accents into a takedown of people... A takedown of supposedly genius billionaires and the people who prop them up or are propped up by them. It's not easy to make a movie that's this much fun with a lot to say, but Glass Onion threads the needle in an incredibly satisfying fashion. Next up, we have Saloom. 
This action-horror-drama hybrid from Senegal was one of my favorite movie-viewing experiences this year. Thank you, Shudder. But beneath its seemingly simple story about a trio of mercenaries trying to lay low from international law enforcement, it is a terrifying and fast-paced tale about grief, ghosts, and trauma that hits all the right emotional notes. Not only that, but all the genres I listed off are perfectly captured, whether it is a military extraction, a tense standoff at a dinner table, or a pitched battle against a supernatural being. Which is all the more impressive when you note how human and complex our supposedly simple heroes are. Saloom challenges its audience to rethink a lot, whether it's how they view men like our central mercenaries, the hyenas, or how anyone carrying a heavy burden from their past chooses to act under pressure or when faced with a chance at redemption or vengeance. Next up, we have The Menu. The second awesome movie about taking rich, shitty rich people to an island before tearing them down manages to be exactly what you think it's going to be without, with, while providing plenty of surprises. Are our rich guests in for a rough night? Yes, but probably not how you think. Is this all a takedown of privilege and cuisine culture? Yes, but again, not how you think. Even if you think you know the title's meaning, you probably don't. But by letting the audience in early, the menu allows viewers to enjoy all of the poking and prodding by Ralph Fiennes' restaurant staff while unraveling a collection of little mysteries and turns, all of which is bolstered by excellent cinematography, excellent acting across the board, and the fascinating interplay between Fiennes' chef and Anya Taylor-Joy's customer. Saying too much else might give away the game, but few movies have invoked so many dark laughs from me as this one did. And finally, we have my personal favorite from the year, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Every aspect of this movie feels like something that shouldn't work. A multiverse movie with Michelle Yeoh primarily playing a disgruntled and disenchanted matriarch of an immigrant family in the middle of a tense IRS audit, who finds herself at the center of a fight for existence that shifts wildly between inspirations and genres on a $30 million budget would be difficult for a normal action comedy let alone a movie that is equal parts absurd, absurdly hilarious, full of exciting action scenes, and some of the most heartbreaking and heartwarming moments ever put on screen, often within seconds of each other. So why? Why does this movie work so damn well? Is it the re-arrival of Keiku Kwan as the emotion, movie's emotional anchor, Waymond? The masterful recreation of Hong Kong action in the films of Wong Kar Wai? How it portrays the struggles of a seemingly ordinary immigrant family as an existential crisis? Or maybe a career-best multi-layered performance from Michelle Yeoh as dozens of different versions of herself. Yes, those all help. But I'd argue the film's thematic throughline is what makes the film hit so hard, which is absurdity and joy. Or rather, just because something is absurd or silly doesn't mean it can't capture something real, meaningful, and joyful. It is very easily for Evelyn and the audience to look at the world and their lives and see nothing, a sequence of poor decisions that led to a life wasted, especially when you have clear visions of what could have been. The endless parade of possibilities in a single life is as absurd as the world with hot dog fingers, or where Evelyn became Michelle Yeoh we all know. How do you deal with that? The movie's answer is, spread joy and kindness. You don't have to be ignorant of life's absurdity and chaos to fight back with warmth. This has been Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join our Facebook group, Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie World, for the latest reviews, discussions, and more. See you next time, everybody, and stay safe.